It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 215 for October 24th, 2010. Recorded October 22nd. Someday you're probably going to own a Linux computer, and that computer will undoubtedly run Ubuntu. Maybe now is the time to learn about this operating system. Okay, maybe that's a little bit of an exaggeration. Maybe it's even wishful thinking. But you really should be thinking seriously about Linux if you need only word processing, spreadsheet, database management, web browsing, and email applications. And to a great extent, that's what people need. Linux doesn't have too much to offer serious publishers or video artists or Photoshop mavens, but it does have a lot to offer everybody else. When I asked my friends at Pearson Education to send along a review copy of Mark Sobel's latest A Practical Guide to Ubuntu Linux, which is a big book, they also sent along a copy of the official Ubuntu book by Benjamin Mako Hill, Matthew Helmke, and Corey Berger. It's considerably smaller. Each of these books serves a specific need. Now, although I reviewed the physical books, I learned later that both are available in Kindle editions. At 1,200 pages, the Practical Guide to Ubuntu Linux is complete, but more than a little intimidating. It's probably not the book I'd recommend for somebody who's looking for basic information, although it would certainly cover that. The official Ubuntu book is a much more manageable 350 pages. A quick side trip down Kindle Avenue here. Technical books tend to be large. 400 pages is small. 1,000 pages, probably about normal. 1,500 to 2,000 pages, not unheard of. I like to read while I'm leaning back in a chair or even reclining in bed, so I've just confirmed for you that I'm a slob, but you probably already knew that. Holding a 1,500-page book in a reasonable reading position while in bed isn't easy. Holding a Kindle is much easier, so I'm really beginning to see the advantage of electronic books. More about that later. The official Ubuntu book begins with a history and the mission statement of Ubuntu. Some readers might think this is merely fluff added to increase the page count. Not so. Linux is the best-known open-source application, and Ubuntu is probably the best-known version of Linux. Understanding the background may not be critical to a successful installation, but I found the information both helpful and interesting. The official Ubuntu book is one of the best books I've seen for beginners. The installation section explains obtaining installation media and installing Ubuntu. In fact, the printed version of the book comes with an installation disk. The official Ubuntu book covers disk partitioning for dual boot systems, too, so that's helpful. Much of the book deals with topics that will be of particular interest to new users. Desktop layout, using Ubuntu's menus, customizing the system. Those are all included, along with other basic information. Because finding, installing, and removing programs in the Linux world is considerably different than in the Windows world, the authors cover these subjects in depth. And because Kbuntu, also known as KDE, is so popular for netbooks, that version is thoroughly covered. In short, the official Ubuntu book covers the basics quite well without venturing into discussions of advanced topics that could easily intimidate a new user or someone who's just thinking about trying Linux. The Practical Guide to Ubuntu Linux also covers installing Ubuntu Linux, but with considerably more detail. 
For that reason, I really can't recommend this book for beginners because it includes a lot of information most beginners wouldn't care about. But it would be an excellent choice for somebody who has been using Ubuntu or any other version of Linux for a version or two, or for a truly technical person who wants to make sure their first Ubuntu installation is exactly right. The book exhaustively covers every installation, setup, customization, and use of Ubuntu Linux. There are clearly written examples and even some assignments that you can use to confirm your understanding of each topic. It is, in short, an excellent teaching and reference book. I can easily recommend each of these books. The official Ubuntu book for the new user and the practical guide to Ubuntu Linux for experienced users. Both are available at your local bookstore as well as from online retailers. And you'll find some links on the TechBiter Worldwide website to Amazon, because you'll also find the Kindle versions there. I received a question this week regarding how to force Explorer to open a specific directory each time. The message went like this. I cannot find a way to make Windows Explorer remember my preferred default display on launch. It insists on showing me the My Documents tree on the left, and that's not what I use. I've set it to remember each folder's view settings, but it always shows My Documents. I keep my data on a different drive. Well, although this seems like it should fix the problem, it doesn't. Windows Explorer isn't really broken. It remembers the folder settings as instructed. If you want to keep the directory... You need to tell it to do that. By default, Windows 7 opens the library's directory, which makes a lot of sense if you use Windows 7 the way it was designed. If you want to display a specific directory with Windows XP, you'll need to make some changes. You can use the same trick for Windows 7, but there's an even better option. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Let's take a look at Windows XP first. By default, in Windows XP, you get the My Computer view, which I consider to be next to useless. So the first thing you need to do is fix that by selecting Folder Options. Next, choose the File Type tab. Scroll down until you find Folders and click the Advanced button. And by the way, you'll see pictures that explain exactly how to do all of this on the TechBiter Worldwide site, www.techbiter.com. The dialog box you see at this point will show Explore and Open. Open will be bolded. Click Explore, then click Set Default. It will now be the bolded word. Then click OK. Now when you click My Computer, the Explorer view will open. But as for what you see, well, Microsoft's default settings are so illogical. I think they can be traced back to the time when somebody at Microsoft thought it would be a good idea to make Windows look like a Mac. So you need to modify some folder options. To do that, select Show Hidden Files and Folders, and then deselect Hide Extensions for Known File Types. Hiding extensions was one of the worst decisions Microsoft ever made. Then consider whether you want to hide protected operating system files. If you and the people who use the computer won't tinker with the system files, go ahead. Don't hide them. Windows will grumble at you, but it'll let you unhide them. On Windows XP, that's what I do. So this modifies the settings in a way that the reasonable person will be able to understand what's going on. Now, to force the Windows Explorer to display a specific directory, you need to select a drive or directory and then create a shortcut. The easiest way to do this is to drag the file or directory to the desktop using the right mouse button and then create a shortcut. 
And that's right as in right-left, not right as in right-wrong. Because the left button would be the wrong button, but the right button would be the right button. Once you've done this, clicking the shortcut will take you to whatever specific drive or directory you created the shortcut for. In Windows 7, the Windows Explorer will still want to show you all libraries, drives, network drives, and home group shares. If you use the Windows 7 libraries concept and have added your own directories to the libraries, this works really well. I have maintained a legacy layout that places most of my data on drive D, except for finalized websites that are maintained in an htdocs directory on drive E. Music is on drive F, and various media files and downloads are on drive G. Well, I could have created new libraries. Instead, I opted to set up the directories I need most often as favorites. Either option works. This makes it possible to reach any of my frequently used directories in two clicks. Open the Explorer, then click whichever favorite I'm looking for. And I don't have to clutter the desktop with a bunch of useless icons. As with Windows XP, Windows 7 uses settings that I consider to be suboptimal, if not flat-out wrong. To change these settings, you need to use the Organize option on the menu. Never would have expected that to be there. And then choose Folder and Search options. The changes I make for Windows 7 are similar to the ones that I make for Windows XP, except I leave Hide Protected Operating System files selected, although my preference is to have access to these files. Setting Windows 7 to display them causes the hidden files to be displayed on the desktop, and that offends my sense of rational design. So check out the TechBiter Worldwide website, and you'll see picture by picture how to get from where you are to where you want to be. Speaking of navigating, if you've ever wondered where a website is physically located or you've wondered if a delay you're encountering is because the website itself is slow or because of congestion elsewhere, you may have used Traceroute to find out. But Traceroute doesn't always clearly identify locations. A PC magazine utility called Browser Map makes it all crystal clear. Browser Map is a utility that costs $8, or you can buy an annual subscription to PC Magazine's entire utility cabinet for just 20 bucks. Traceroute provides basic information. You'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website a traceroute between my house and the TechBiter Worldwide website, which happens to be in Utah. The path from here to Utah travels through Cincinnati, Chicago, and New York before reaching Provo. And sometimes the result of a traceroute call can be a bit murky to read. Browser map really clarifies the picture, and you'll see that sometimes the route between two locations that are physically close is, by any definition, the long way to go. When I used browser map to show the route between Columbus and Utah, where my website is, it went a different route this time. Columbus to Minneapolis to Los Angeles, back to Minneapolis where it changed networks, to New York City to Plano, Texas, and then to Provo. That seems like the route that an airline gone mad would put together. Or maybe you wonder whether Pravda, which means truth in Russian, is really located in Russia. Indeed it is. You get there by way of Columbus to New York to Washington State. Not Washington, D.C., but Washington State. And then St. Petersburg, and finally Moscow. How about Al Jazeera? That's the BBC-influenced Mideastern News Agency. Where is its website? Well, it's in New York City. To reach the Al Jazeera English website, my path from Columbus takes me to Washington, D.C., Pennsylvania, Minneapolis, New Jersey, and finally New York. 
In some ways, this is rather like riding a subway in New York. Not all trains stop at all stations, and you might have to change lines along the way. In this case, we start in Columbus on Wide Open West's network, or train if you wish, and switch to the PSINet train, and then to the Cogent train in D.C., in Pennsylvania, we pick up the AT&T line and stay on it until we reach our destination in New York City. There aren't any real surprises here. Websites are simply located where they're located. The decision is made for any number of reasons. Pravda's managers probably feel that a location in Russia provides adequate response for English readers. Al Jazeera is perhaps a bit more interested in providing the best possible response and therefore hosts its English website in the U.S., the Arabic version is hosted in, well, Great Britain. TechBiter is hosted in Provo, Utah, because that's where Bluehost's servers are. I have found Bluehost to be economical, reliable, and responsive. These are three features that are often presented this way. Fast, reliable, inexpensive. Pick any two. I found that Bluehost routinely delivers three out of three, and that's why my site is there. So the bottom line for Browser Map, four cats. Browser Map shows you the route for just $8. Browser Map goes far beyond what any built-in traceroute function does. For just a few bucks, Browser Map will show you the route between your location and the website you're interested in, as well as the actual location of the website. There's a link to the PC Magazine website from the TechBiter Worldwide website. You can download individual utilities there or sign up for the $20 a year plan. In short circuits, wow, am I ever confused. I love books and I hate books. I love the Kindle, I hate the Kindle. This is a time of change, and for someone who has probably 1,000-plus books in the house, the transition to digital hurts. Converting from analog to digital music was fine. Converting from analog to digital video, no problem. Converting from analog to digital books would be fine if Amazon would stop trying to piss me off. Sorry if that offends you, but... Amazon has what could be the best digital reader if the company would simply look beyond short-term Wall Street-driven goals to the longer term. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I do love books, and I have a lot of them. Nothing is faster when it comes to flipping between page 375 and page 6 to check a bookmarked fact. But books are heavy, and if I take a book on a trip, it's always the wrong book. I want to read something that I don't have with me. Besides weighing a lot, books take up a lot of space. Well, the Kindle can hold thousands of books. Mine probably has about 50 right now. So I always have something that I'd like to read. And the Kindle weighs far less than a single book. One thing I can say about the Kindle is something I thought I would never say. It is better than a book. But it's nearly impossible to load a DRM-protected Mobi format book onto a Kindle. Now, Amazon owns the company that owns the Mobi format. The Mobi format is nearly identical to Amazon's PRC format. But if the Mobi document is DRM protected, you're out of luck. You can buy a Mobi book, but you can't read it on the Kindle. You can download a Mobi book from your library, but you can't read it on the Kindle. Yes, I know, Amazon is in business to make money. I understand that. But I keep wishing that American businesses would be able to see beyond the current quarter's spreadsheet. So now, a few weeks down the road, I love my Kindle far more than I ever thought I would. But I also hate Amazon's short-sighted policies far more than expected. 
Oh, look, it's not a Mac, it's a big iPhone. Maybe Steve Jobs hasn't noticed that a lot of applications already exist for the Mac. This week he announced that the computer will get its own application store. Does Apple want to turn the Mac into a big iPhone? OS 10, 10.7, Lion, which will include these new features, will be available next summer. Oh, goody. Apple says that it plans to launch the Mac App Store within three months so that Mac users can buy, download, and install software via the Internet, just like Linux, Windows, and, for that matter, OS X. The Mac App Store will also alert users when updates are available. The App Store for the iPhone has been a huge incentive for people to buy Apple's smartphone technology. But analysts say they really don't expect the same thing to be the case for the Mac Store. Will what works for phones work for computers? I've been wrong about Apple before, but this just doesn't seem like a home-run candidate to me. Speaking of Mr. Mac, you can now buy a MacBook Air for less than $1,000. This week, Apple announced a 13.3-inch MacBook Air and a smaller 11.6-inch model. If you've been lusting after a MacBook, now might be your time to strike. The sub-foot-long MacBook Air weighs just 2.3 pounds. Apple says it'll run on batteries for five hours. This is not exactly a leading-edge computer, but it's no slouch either. 1.4 gigahertz Core 2 Duo processor, screen resolution of 1366 by 768, and an NVIDIA GeForce 320M graphics card. If you can get by with just 64 gigabytes of solid-state disk space, you'll pay $1 less than 1000 plus tax, of course, which will push it over 1000 For the 128-gigabyte version, you'll need to part with $1,200, and you'll get seven hours of battery life. That's enough for a flight from New York to Los Angeles, even if there are some delays. The 13.3-inch model comes with two USB ports and weighs less than three pounds. It's also slim, but you probably already knew that. Macs tend to be. The low end for this computer is $1,300 for 128-gigabyte solid-state disk. For $1,600, you get 256 gigabytes of storage. Apple says the new systems have solid-state drives that are faster and more reliable than standard drives. Tempting. Very, very tempting. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.